MSW Media. News was wearing Daily Beans, Daily Beans, Daily Beans, Daily Beans. Hello and welcome to Daily Beans for Thursday, July 9th, 2020. Today, a discussion about the final Supreme Court opinions from this term with SCOTUS blog co-founder Amy Howe, an update on the Russia bounty story with the man who wrote the book on the president's daily brief, Trump threatens to withhold funding for states that fail to reopen schools in the fall, Harvard and MIT sue the administration over a rule stripping visas from international students, Lieutenant Colonel Vindeman retires, and lawmakers are paralyzed over response to the Russian bounty intelligence. I'm your host, A.G., Hey, everybody. We have a great show in store for you today. Thank you to Mandy and Jordan for covering for me yesterday. Uh, I had a very important thing, and it went very, very well, and I'll keep you posted as I can. I will know more soon. I would say probably by three weeks from now. Uh, But don't worry. I'll keep you posted. Anyway, good news. Thanks for all your well wishes, and uh, everything in that arena is good. Well, it seems like the rest of the country is falling apart. Uh, but today I'll be speaking with David Priest. He's a former CIA briefer and author of the President's Book of Secrets, which is about the PDB, the President's Daily Brief. And he also wrote the book How to Get Rid of a President, uh, probably one of the most knowledgeable individuals when it comes to the President's, the President's Daily Brief. Uh, he also hosts the Lawfare podcast. And I'm very excited to speak to the co-founder of the SCOTUS blog, Amy Howe, about uh, the opinions handed down Wednesday, today. And we know what we'll be getting tomorrow. We're getting the two Trump tax case opinions Thursday morning, along with a third case that she and I will discuss. It's also a very important case. Then, of course, we have news from Under the Radar and good news with uh, Jordan Coburn today. So looking forward to that. And we do need your good news stories, your quarantine confessions, and your suggestions for a theme for this Friday's happy hour live stream at 4 p.m. for patrons and 5 p.m. for the public. Just got word on my cell phone that Andrew Torres from Opening Arguments will be popping in to say hi and answer some of your questions. Send them all to us on the contact page at dailybeanspod.com. That's where you can also uh, sign up to sponsor a patron, or if you can't afford to be a patron, we have a lot of free memberships to give away that were donated by our current patrons. Such generous folks. But before uh, any of the good news and before uh, we talk to... um, uh, Amy Howe from SCOTUS blog. Let's get to the lead story. Uh, the Trump administration's lies about the Russian bounty intelligence. Hot notes. Okay, so some new stories have dropped in the Russian bounty case, including, as we know, Robert O'Brien openly blaming the CIA briefer, the person who briefs the president, you, you know, of the president's daily brief, a woman named Beth Sanner, who just this week made remarks about knowing your customer, uh, who is the president, but skirted the question about being accused of deciding not to brief the president on the Russian bounties, as the White House claims. And joining me today is a former CIA briefer and author of the books How to Get Rid of a President and the President's Book of Secrets, David Priest. David, I know you're busy, so thanks for speaking with me today. Hey, good to be with you again. I wish it were under better circumstances, actually, because this story is horrific from beginning to end. It is, and I'm doing my best to keep it alive. Okay, so can I get your top-line reaction to the White House, Robert O'Brien, blaming the CIA briefer for allegedly not telling Trump 
about what was in his February 27th, according to officials, President's Daily Brief on Russian bounties. I'll give you two answers. The first one is the short answer. Shameful. It's absolutely shameful. The reason why? Because the National Security Advisor's primary jobs, and on top of everything else they might or might not do, you have to make sure that the president gets the national security information that he or she needs to make national security decisions, and that includes intelligence, and you have to manage some kind of interagency process to get decisions forwarded to the president so the president knows what he needs to decide on and, in theory, knows the arguments behind various agencies and departments' stances on that decision. Well, this clearly involves both. This involves a presidential decision about what to do about this Russian bounty program, but it also involves the former, which is making sure national security information gets to the president. Now, this is a national security advisor who, for whatever reason, has not been able to get an intelligence briefer in front of the president every day to talk about the contents of the president's daily brief, which he apparently does not read. So that means that the intelligence community briefer gets in to see the president I think recently the analysis shows about one and a half times per week on average. Okay, so what happens when you don't have a president getting briefed on intelligence regularly from an intelligence briefer? Well, if you're the national security advisor, you put on your national security advisor pants and you do the job. You make sure that the president gets the intelligence information he needs to make national security decisions. Looking at the briefer, who you don't get in there often enough, and saying, it's your fault, is shameful. It's also probably a lie because his reason was the briefer didn't deem it credible enough to highlight for the president orally. Well, it was deemed credible enough to put in the printed PDB, according to reporting. If that's the case, then it's credible enough to be given to the president. And it's not the intelligence agency's fault that the president doesn't read the PDB. Yeah. And of course, then, you know, we had, you know, going off of what you were just talking about, we had the DNI, um, Ratcliffe uh, issue a memo on July 1st, you know, after the New York Times reporting came out saying, well, the uh, intel was not credible because different intelligence agencies ranked it at different levels of confidence, which is the same bullshit they tried to pull on the intelligence community's assessment of the 2016 election interference by Russia, saying that you have to throw the whole thing out because the CIA said it was high confidence and the NSA said it was medium confidence and the FBI said high confidence. So they don't match. So the whole thing is bullshit. And 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 I, I, I feel like this is just a reactionary politicized memo that he's produced. Yeah, it makes no sense. The The whole idea of intelligence being verified and having lock, lockstep judgments of certainty and confidence from every element of the intelligence community before being presented to senior customers, including the president, is garbage. I mean, look, if the president's daily brief only had things that were of complete and universal high confidence and things that had been fully verified in their word, it would be a very thin book because that doesn't happen very often. And it would be a very boring book because intelligence is about the unknown. It's about secrets giving us a peek into a situation that an adversary doesn't want us to see. If it's something that is completely known and completely verified and completely agreed upon, it's probably really boring because it's known to everybody in the world at that point. That's just not what intelligence is about. Yeah, it's probably his preference. He might actually be like, I only want to know about things that all of the agencies decide is of high confidence. Like they, that might maybe that's his preference, but it it's not. Well, the way in which that case, I certainly wonder how he would have reacted to the 
intelligence about bin Laden's whereabouts in Abbottabad, because by all the accounts of people involved, that was absolutely far from certain, and very good analysts and very good national security leaders differed widely on the odds that they placed on whether bin Laden was actually in that compound. The president had to make a tough decision, as presidents do when they're faced with the best intelligence assessments the community can provide. They're often uncertain, and it's the job of the president to make decisions in the face of uncertainty. One only wonders how uncertain the intelligence going into Soleimani's whereabouts were before the president decided to go ahead and initiate that action. Was it absolutely confirmed, 100% verified, with confidence levels at the same for every agency? Perhaps, but probably not. Most intelligence stories aren't. So it's a little disingenuous to claim it in this case. Yeah, and that would be a great question to ask Pompeo, who's probably not going to show up to the foreign affairs hearing, House foreign affairs hearing uh, tomorrow to testify. Yeah, I don't think for Pompeo that would be something he wants to bring up because that would go back to the Benghazi hearings, which he was (laughs) certainly on fire about when they could pretend in retrospect, like everything was absolutely clear and absolutely known and there was no disagreement about what was happening on the ground. Mm. But clearly any objective reading of the situation shows that there was some confusion, that there were some different opinions and definitely some different interpretations about what was going on. Well, if that can be true for Benghazi and he can be absolutely livid about it and hold hearings that go on longer than the investigations into Pearl Harbor or the Kennedy assassination or 9-11 because of it, then certainly he can't use that excuse here to get this president out of it. Mm. Yeah, and and now we've got this additional reporting from Just Security, um, Ryan Goodman today, uh, who is talking about, you know, regardless, I mean, you know, not to say that it's not important, obviously, but ignoring the, you know, the Russian bounty February 27th PDB uh, intelligence that some say uh, was known by the White House as early as last January. The White House did know, and there was a lot of public reporting on the fact that Russia was arming the Taliban in Afghanistan. And and so that uh, can't be ignored either. And it this, this story just keeps piling on and piling on. And, and we've seen nothing uh, from the president uh, in retaliation at all towards Russia. In fact, it's been very accommodating and friendly. Well, to me... There's so many stories here that intersect. I mean, we've got the intelligence story. We've got the policy process story. We've got the actual policy decision story. Um, Those are very different things to argue. I mean, you can argue that the intelligence process was broken, but the decision was good. Or you could argue that the intelligence process was fine, but that the the decision was bad. In this case, um, we still haven't had a good TikTok of when the president found out about things what discussions were held at the president's level versus at the principal's level, the deputy's level, and in working groups, in theory coordinated by the NSC staff, but perhaps at the Pentagon and elsewhere, to understand what fed into which process where, and to what extent other issues involving Russian relations fed into this. So I pull back and look at the big picture, and I try to figure out, is there a rational explanation for no White House reaction to this? And actually, there is. It could be a strategic decision saying we don't think that the benefits of doing anything with with Russia to react to this are worth it. In that case, I mean, it's a hard policy to argue, but I I could at least understand it. We have not yet had that defense. We have not yet had the defense that the president led extensive conversations and had in-depth discussions about the costs and benefits of different policies. We haven't heard that. We've heard that 
there were other meetings involving that, <laughs> but we haven't heard that. Yeah, there were interagency and NSC meetings, and they put together a menu of options in response. Uh, in fact, as, I think as, early, as as recently as March. But um, you know, now we've got additional reporting from that same article from Ryan Goodman at Just Security. Uh, that Trump actually directed the CIA to share intelligence information on counterterrorism with the Kremlin, despite no discernible reward. And you and I both know, I mean, every administration tries to do a reset with Russia, but I don't feel like this is part of that. No, I'll take it even to, to a bigger place, which is the CT cooperation side. Is It's been well documented for many years that the United States seeks to stop terrorism and works with partners that they otherwise would not work with in order to share counterterrorism information in the hope of being more effective against terrorists overall, and as a side benefit, perhaps getting some countries or individuals within those governments to be slightly more friendly to the U.S. and more willing to give us something in return. Now, I've seen reporting from former CIA officers. I think Mark um, Polymeropoulos has said this, that he, he found that there was never any return from the Russians, that giving this information to the Russians um, never saw any benefit. Um, I have no reason to disbelieve that, um, but I also understand the incentive to try to get as much information on something like counterterrorism or perhaps counter-narcotics, an issue that most civilized countries agree on to them. But again, what we don't know here, because we're not getting a straight story from the White House, and because of all of the things on Russia that you and I have talked about for years, is to what extent was that a rational calculation of give up something of very small cost, which is some counterterrorism intelligence, in the hope of getting anything back? Or was it part of a bigger Russia narrative on the part of the president and others? It certainly appears like the latter, which just adds to our stack of worries about the whole Russia dynamic here. But there is actually a logical argument behind doing this in some circumstances. Um, I don't think it's as blockbuster news as it appears to be, simply because there is a rational policy process that could come up with this. The real story is, why is it that this is happening around the same time that the Russians are showing anything but cooperation on some of our strongest counterterrorism issues? That needs to be the focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, you and I have talked about the whole goal being to get the sanctions off of Russia <laughs> since that's you know since the beginning. Um, the ones that Obama put on. Uh, put on Russia for interference in the election and for the annexation of Crimea at reason they were kicked out of the, the G8, which since this is, all has happened, Trump invited back into the G8. So has tried to tried. <laughs> yeah. I think it's fun to watch the other countries reactions, which is, <laughs> yeah, we're members of this group too. And no, thanks. Yeah. I'm, I'm almost afraid we're going to get kicked out. So, <laughs> um, you know, it's, you know, yeah, you're right. Cause Angela Merkel, Trudeau, they've, they've all, been very outspoken about that so um finally um you know we have general nicholson who's going to be testifying tomorrow uh along with uh mike morrell uh at the house foreign affairs like i said pompeo's been invited do you think he'll show up i don't think he'll show up. i don't um we just don't have a good track record of voluntary testimony from senior officials in this administration yeah totally and and i i think that one of the great or one of the important things that they should discuss with uh, General Nicholson 
is that he was one of the senior military officials that spoke openly uh, about confidence that Russia was arming the Taliban and resigned shortly thereafter, along with Mattis. And, you know, he told the, the Voice of America, VOA, which now since has been gutted, along with the DNI, along with the NTCT. And it's, and you know, the firing of swaths of inspectors general, it just, it just seems like a cover-up to me. Yeah, it's 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 hard to distinguish between uh, nefarious cover-up, rank incompetence, and simple confusion. And they they seem to be feeding each other in several of these stories. Um, this one, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where it is. It would be great to have Mike Pompeo show up and uh, forthrightly answer questions about 17 different stories that ha- have not been clear to us so far. I don't put much stock in it because, frankly, I don't see he puts much stock in it. If he doesn't show up, is he going to start getting subpoenas and calls for resignation that anybody will take seriously at the White House? And if not, is Congress going to take some serious action to impeach him as secretary of state? Um, Without those measures being available, I don't think Mike Pompeo feels any real urge to show up and answer difficult questions. No, we've been, we haven't had any teeth on enforcing those kind of, if even if a subpoena was issued, enforcing it at all. So, and they know they can just. That'll be one of the big stories after this administration. I mean, we've we focused on the minutia a lot in the day to day reporting. One of the big stories to pull back and look at, and I'm sure political scientists will do this, but I, I think a wider group of people need to look at it, is the the breakdown in oversight with the particular flavor of senior officials showing up for testimony. Um, People either refuse to show up or they will find an excuse not to show up for a long time. So Bill Barr, of course, was on the hot seat weeks ago to show up immediately and explain this and explain this. Mm. And what? He's going to testify at the end of July if it happens at all. (laughs) Um, This kind of delayed responsiveness to legitimate oversight is eroding a norm that has not always been fully upheld, but eroding a norm that has worked somewhat well for decades and decades, and its decline in the last few years has been dramatic. Yeah. And um, finally, you know, your former CIA, what are these intelligence officials risking? Uh, where, what are your thoughts on, on these leaks, quote unquote? I mean, I know that the president and the White House are more concerned about who leaked this information than the information itself, which is common for them. So what are, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, um, as, as much as we want to know these stories, I'm still on the side of um, if you're a working level official on these topics, you, you don't leak this information. If it's classified information, you're doing harm to the cause you're, you're trying to support and you're undermining norms that you're going to want back there once we have a normally functioning system again. And the ratchet effect may mean that you're, you're opening up a box you can't close again, and that's bad for all of us, um, sacrificing the long-term good for a short-term gain. That said, I am not convinced that many of these leaks are coming from inside the intelligence community. If you look at the sourcing on a lot of these pieces, they often source to things like uh, officials familiar with the situation or officials who were made aware of the briefing or things like that. Um, that's generic enough sourcing. That could be what seems to be the most dominant source of leaks in this administration, which is officials at and in the White House and the West Wing generally. Um, In this story, the people who care the most, not to say that others don't care, because I think the vast majority of Americans really care, 
But the people who care the most about force protection are in the Pentagon, and they were aware of this reporting. So the, the sourcing does not rule out that it came from the Pentagon either. Um, listen, in a normally functioning administration, um, leaks happen. In a dysfunctional administration, leaks happen more because the policy process just doesn't work, and it's a way for people to get the story out. If it's not classified information, that's just par for the course in Washington. It's always happened. It always will happen. Presidents hate it, and they can't stop it. When it comes to classified information, there are many channels that people can work with to make sure that people are made aware of this. And you're not going to convince me that there weren't senior officials who wanted to do more on this, and they could go public with it because they have the ability at the secretary of defense level or at the director of central intelligence level to speak out. There are channels to get this information out there, and I'm confident that people inside the national security bureaucracy are doing their job and getting the information to the customers who care, the customers who do want to protect the forces on the ground, even if the president doesn't. Yeah, Gina Haspel sort of put that out in her statement. She's like, this this endangers our ability to follow these leads and um, et cetera. All right, well, thank you very much. Tell everyone where they can find you, David. Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at David Priest, P-R-I-E-S-S. Um, still, still working at Lawfare. You can find me at the lawfareblog.com website. We are doing our daily podcast, interviewing people there. So tune into that podcast after this one. And uh, I'm sure we'll keep talking about these issues. Yeah, I think we will for, for a while to come. So thanks for joining me today. You bet. All right, everybody, stick around. Right after this, we have news from under the radar. You don't want to miss it. So stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, friends. Today's episode of The Daily Beans is brought to you by Caliper CBD. We all need to practice self-care these days, and it can seem daunting. But who said taking your care, care of yourself has to be such a pain? It's, it shouldn't be hard. Otherwise, you're just going to get more stress from trying to worry about having to take care of yourself. Uh, anyway, that's what's great about CBD. It helps you feel better without making drastic changes to your routine. It's really easy. CBD has helped me with feeling more calm and being able to sleep easier and feeling less sore after workouts or long, busy days. I was skeptical of CBD at first. I mean, droppers full of t you know tinctures can't be the best, most modern way. Um, but Caliper agrees, and that's why they introduced a better way to consume CBD. Uh, Caliper CBD powder is completely tasteless, and it mixes easily in any food or drink with precisely 20 milligrams in each packet of Caliper CBD. That's the number one thing I love about this so much. It's precisely 20 milligrams, so you know exactly what you're getting. Uh, I like to add it to my morning coffee or a you know, post-workout protein smoothie. Uh, it's clinically proven that uh, this is the second reason it's so amazing. You absorb 450%, 450% more CBD with Caliber CBD powder than compared to tinctures. That's a huge difference. Caliper gives you all the benefits of CBD in just 15 minutes. It's fast acting. It's completely THC-free, no GMOs, no fillers, no chemicals, no artificial flavors. Uh, get 20% off your first order when you use promo code DAILYBEANS at trycaliper.com slash dailybeans. You can try Caliper CBD risk-free for 30 days. If you do not love it, they will give you your full refund, money back, no problem. That's trycaliper, C-A-L-I-P-E-R, dot com slash dailybeans. Don't forget promo code DAILYBEANS for 20% off your first order. All right, everybody, welcome back. It is time for some news from Under the Radar. Joining me today for this block is Jordan Coburn. Jordan, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good. Um, thanks to everyone's, like, warrior princess, Xena, uh, She-Ra, Wonder Woman vibes yesterday. Um, I am one step closer to where I want to be, and I will tell you about it when I'm able to. But thank you. It worked. So <laughs> keep sending the vibes. <laughs> yeah. Um. How are you? How how was your uh, day? 
Good. Yeah, it's going well. Um, I had some pokey, which is always delicious. Mm. Love pokey. Other than that, pretty uneventful day. Yeah. it's At least it's not as hot today as it has been. Yeah, it's been pretty brutal. I also keep forgetting that I have an air conditioner because I always have my drapes pulled. So mm. I've only now just started to recognize that I have a way out of this hell, which has been nice. So I've been enjoying that. Yeah, it's. I've talked to several people who are quarantined at home and because they don't have AC and it's hot, it's like double miserable. And so I'm like, I feel so bad. That's That sucks so hard. I learned something today on the topic of sweat. Apparently, I didn't know this, but I guess one of the purposes of a bed frame is so that when you sweat in your bed... It, it can, like, escape into the air, I guess, instead of just, like, falling and sitting at the base of your bed and accumulating. It can actually evaporate and, uh, you know, your bed can breathe, so to speak. I didn't know that. I wish I knew that before. How does the sweat get all the way through your mattress? I don't know, man. Maybe sweat's heavier than we thought. Yikes. Who knows? I mean, I have I have memory foam. I feel like I would have to work really hard and I have been because of menopause because of hot flashes and night sweats I've been working real hard uh to put that bed frame to good use but I have a platform bed so ah you know who knows someone can fact check us if all of this was false anyways I'm doing great <laughs> anyways I'm doing great good well I'm glad to hear it um the uh, United States not so great um we have a record 60,000 cases in a day over 60,000 cases in a day of coronavirus the state of Florida had more than 10,000 from yesterday um, with 40, 40 hospitals now at capacity. California had a record day, 9,500 new cases uh, in one day as our national death toll for, for the United States tops 132,000 just a couple minutes ago. And we're um, over 3 million uh, cases. And Dr. Burks, who I don't even listen to anymore because I think she's a hack, she even said today we have significant cases uh, in people under the age of 45. It's younger people who are being affected now on the second wave, and it's probably got a lot to do with the parties and Memorial Day, and um, that's what she says, so take it with a grain of salt, but that's kind of what we've been saying. So uh, Mike Pence said today that the federal offices were seeing early indications that the percentage of positive tests was flattening in the hard-hit states of Arizona, Florida, and Texas. Even if that were true, which it is technically, they're flattening at an alarmingly high level. You, you don't want them to be flat at this level. You want them to be flat below 5%. And right now they're flat at like 20%. Uh, I mean, that's like saying, hey, we were having, you know, like if, if you imagine this as rockets coming into the United States, we're being attacked by rockets from Canada because they're tired of our shit, right? And so we have, you know... Well, you know, we had 10 rocket attacks yesterday, um, but today we had uh, 100, and and so I hope we I hope we even out and flatten it at 100 a day like that. That's not great. You want it to be zero. So mm -hmm. anyway, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that ridiculous cherry picking of statistics. You know, that's that's how they get so many of their I put this in quotes victories though is by manipulating data like that in ways that do not reflect the reality that we actually want to live in just one that they are trying to sell as acceptable currently and it's mm -hmm. yes yeah. weak it's weak ass shit 
It's infuriating. And, and you know, the, while the World Health Organization, which Trump officially withdrew the United States from yesterday in the middle of a global pandemic, the WHO said in May that maintaining a positivity rate of less than 5% for at least two weeks with comprehensive testing would indicate that the virus is under control. All three states that the vice president cited as, you know, flattening their, you know, positivity rate are reporting far higher levels. As I said, um, the average positivity rate in Arizona is about 20 percent over the last seven days. Um, the state's own data show that its positivity rate hit 25 percent on July 5th. The fast spreading outbreak is putting pressure on hospital capacity and it's leading the state to record more deaths than ever. In, uh, in recent days, new cases in Arizona have been trending upward since the beginning of June. And this week, the state has been averaging more than 3,600 new cases a day, which is a record. Um, the positivity rate, what we're talking about here is like, the, you know, you test a bunch of people and how, you know, the, the rate at which you're getting positive returns, positive tests uh, come back. But that can help determine how widespread an outbreak is. But it can vary depending on how much testing is being done and who is being tested. So for example, when they tested everybody in that meatpacking plant and found that 78% of the people were testing positive, that's a really high positivity rate. So it's without, you know, any kind of structured testing program, you know, it's we're really flying blind, but 25% on July 5th, that's really high. Uh, again, CDC recommends two weeks under the 5% number in order to be considered winning the battle against uh, coronavirus. Uh, early on in the pandemic, when testing in the United States was scarce and reserved for only the sickest patients or those who had come in contact with those patients, positivity rates were high. Ideally, the more testing that's done, the lower the rate would fall. The average positivity rate in Florida, which has seen record numbers in uh, record numbers of cases in recent days, as I said, has climbed above 15 percent. And in Texas, the positivity rate is right around 20 percent at the beginning of July. And on May 5th, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas said the positivity rate of more than 10 percent would be a warning flag. But the state reported its highest daily death toll on Tuesday of 90 deaths in the state that day. Uh, at the briefing today, Dr. Burke said in counties and states hit particularly hard by the virus, gatherings should be scaled back again to 10 people or fewer. Uh, as the White House had recommended back in March, um, I'm not sure how we can open all the schools if we can't have more than 10 people indoors at a time. You're going to go over that in a minute, Jordan. Um, a couple other quick things. United Airlines said today that they will furlough as many as 36,000 workers. That's nearly 40% of its workforce starting October 1st if travel remains weak. Um, airlines have been warning workers for months there could be significant cuts. United received about one-fifth of the $25 billion that Congress authorized in March to help airlines pay employees. The money came with a condition that the companies not make significant cuts through September 30th. Hmm. So here we are. They're cutting 40% of their workforce October 1st. Isn't United the parent company of American Airlines? I don't know. Or vice versa or something. Okay, I'm going to Google that while you're talking because I am also, if that is the case, then American Airlines is also the airline that said they were going to start eliminating the open middle seat policy. Well, American Airlines is the worst airline in the Yes, five, they are. So. And we can confirm that 1000%. <laughs> Screw American Airlines. Yeah. I don't give a fuck yeah. if you're listening. You guys suck. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like 80% of our listenership works for American Airlines. I'm sure that's real. We lose everything we've gained over the last three years because of that one right. comment. <laughs> 
and again, we get fucked by American Airlines. It would just be the way. Mm-hmm. Um, Walt Disney World in Orlando will continue welcome back visitors on Saturday, even as cases rise in Florida and they remain high. In doing so, Disney is uh, stepping into a politicized debate surrounding the pandemic efforts to keep people safe. And hours after President Trump assailed, like, ripped apart, tore up guidelines issued by his own Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for reopening schools, Mike Pence, appearing with the White House Coronavirus Task Force, announced the agency is going to issue new recommendations next week, saying administration officials don't want the guidance to be a reason schools don't open. What? You don't want guidance from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention to be a reason that schools don't open. What would be a good reason, fuckface? Like, what, what, what? Kids are going to die. Teachers are going to die if they do this. And you have more information on this administration's push to open schools, right, Jordan? Yeah, I do. So, yeah, Trump tweeted that he's thinking about withholding federal funding from schools that do not go back in the fall. And he said also that, like he said, his own CDC's guidelines were too restrictive. And shortly after that, Pence came out and announced that the CDC is going to be issuing five new documents next week that will have guidelines that are less tough, obviously in a direct response to Trump's criticism. He also tweeted, in Germany, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and many other countries, and then in in all caps he says, schools are open with no problems. Uh, he returns to regular caps. The Dems think it would be bad for them politically for U.S. if U.S. schools open before the November election, but <sighs> is important for the children and families. May cut off funding if not open. He texts like every absent father, just without an appropriate use of subjects and verbs. I hate that shit. Give me a full ass sentence, you bitch. Anyways, <sighs> he uh he, <laughs> he mm. <laughs> yes, it's. Sorry, I hate saying the word bitch. I'm trying to get that out of my vocabulary. If you have any suggestions for a nice, uh, you know, substitute, let me know. But he he completely he completely is is incentivizing people and districts with this tweet to open up in a way that, like you said, is reckless and is going to lead to people spreading the virus and potentially could lead to people dying that are within those schools, especially teachers and people who are in the age range that are more at risk. And it's it's just it's just another. <laughs> another thing that is so incredibly unpresidential and just leading americans in to danger right now when we can't go there and all signs are pointing to us needing to scale back and meanwhile we have the head of our country telling school systems that he's going to deny them federal funding if they do not get back to opening there is, though, the case that most of school funding comes from states and municipalities, not from the federal government, but apparently the White House is actually trying to find ways to use the next COVID-19 relief bill to tie school funding to their reopenings. So they're trying, reportedly, are trying to institutionally find a way to punish counties for this. Mm. Yeah, that's, ha- that's illegal yeah it has to be right and he also had another tweet um this one just relating to his criticism of the cdc guidelines i disagree with at cdc gov on their very tough and expensive guidelines for opening schools while they want them open they are asking schools to do very impractical things i will be meeting with them three exclamation points oh three 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 Three. exclamation points three exclamation points that's how you know he's an idiot um Hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, he just has, he has people in the palm of his hand like Pence, you know, and then he is trying to project that he has the school districts in the palm of his hands as well. I think a lot of this is Trump communicates like this. He just says threats, right? Regardless of whether or not he's allowed to actually act out on those threats. But I feel like this is an example of that. It's all it's already known that the federal government isn't largely responsible for local school funding. However, him just saying that though, it's it's the sort of gravitas, you know, and like dogma that he's just really trying to get across which is like i'm willing to punish people basically that don't want to go my way even if an agency that's under my you know purview is coming out with rules that are to the contrary i, I, I he's just trying to exude control uh, control to manipulate the outcome of public safety for americans which is it just will never stop to baffle me it will never stop baffling me that people take that as a positive quality that he has to actively lead his people into danger consistently. Mm. Yeah, it's it's mind blowing. It it really is, and his his actions have impacted so many things in so many negative ways. Uh, I you know just from today from Natasha Bertrand and Laura Seligman at Politico, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vinman is retiring from the military. Key witness in the impeachment of President Donald Trump. He's retiring following a campaign of bullying, intimidation, and retaliation, according to his lawyer in a statement. The White House attempted at least once to turn the Pentagon against Vindman, and, and at the White House's request, the Department of Defense Inspector General opened a preliminary inquiry into allegations of inappropriate behavior against Vindman, uh, and that's according to one official familiar with the discussions. But after quickly completing the inquiry, the Inspector General found no substantiated claims and no reason to hold up his promotion either. Um, following the inquiry... Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy recommended Vindman be promoted to colonel, um, and McCarthy included Vindman's name in a list of officers recommended for promotion he submitted to the Office of the Secretary of Defense on Thursday, according to a senior defense official. That's last Thursday. We know Senator Tammy Duckworth was threatening to hold up all 1,123 promotions unless Esper, SecDef Esper, guaranteed the promotion of Vindman in writing. And on Monday, Esper signed off on Vindman's promotion, along with the other officers on the list— this, uh, this is according to the same uh, official who spoke to Politico. The list was slated to be submitted to the White House for approval uh, by the end of the week, but Vindman is retiring, and even with Vindman leaving the service, Tammy Duckworth says she'll still continue to hold up the 1,123 senior military promotions until she receives, quote, a transparent accounting of this disgraceful situation from Mark Esper himself. Uh, Vin Vindman's lawyer released a statement today obtained by CNN that reads, in part, I'm just going to give you the, uh, a part of it here, uh, through a campaign of bullying, intimidation, and retaliation, the President of the United States attempted to force Lieutenant Colonel Vindman to choose between adhering to the law or pleasing the President, between honoring his oath or protecting his career, between protecting his promotion or the promotion of his fellow soldiers. These are choices that no one in the United States should have to confront, especially one who has dedicated his life to serving it. Vindman did what the law compelled him to do, and for that, he was bullied by the President and his proxies, and yet Vindman would not be intimidated and will not be corrupted. He did what he always has done, put the interest of his country ahead of his own. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman's patriotism has cost him his career. Today, our country loses a devoted soldier, but it is incumbent upon all of us to ensure it does not lose the values he represents. So, Yeah, I mean, I will never forget watching him for the rest of my life testifying. No. He will forever be remembered 
as an American hero, as far as I'm concerned. Same, and I hope uh, Biden gives him the Medal of Freedom. Yeah. Still just really shitty to hear and keep seeing so many people pushed out that are just uh, trying to do the right thing and being really brave. I know. I know, right? And their bravery, or, or like their their trepidation that they clearly had before coming out is only confirmed, sadly, over and over and over again, that they were right to fear coming out. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, because of how this administration functions and what they're trying to hide. Well, thank you, Vinman, for everything that you did for truth, which is what we are pursuing constantly right now. At least some of us. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Another thing that's going on right now, Harvard and MIT today, Wednesday, sued the Trump administration over their decision to not allow foreign students to take online classes this fall semester. So, you know, as we've heard and talked about, so many schools are needing to commit to an online setting for their classes, and in-person classes, you know, are are not going to be a thing, uh, hopefully. And I'm I'm just thinking, unless Trump can intimidate them to the level that would make them go against their better judgment but i feel like collegiate institutions are not going to do that uh at least ones that that are already making the call to go online for the remainder of the next academic year but harvard and mit are they're they're suing him for that decision uh here's a quote from harvard university president larry bacow he says the order came down without notice its cruelty surpassed only by its recklessness. It appears that it was designed purposefully to place pressure on colleges and universities to open their on-campus classrooms for in-person instruction this fall without regard to concerns for the health and safety of students, instructors, and others. And I agree completely. That's exactly what it seems like. And it's also another reason for him to get to intimidate people who are not uh, naturally born American citizens which is something that he and his administration love to do. So he gets a twofer on that one for being a piece of shit. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's like, I know people, I know people that would be affected by this, and it breaks my heart to think that this is something they need to even worry about right now. It's another thing to add on to the pile. It is such an unfriendly and unwelcoming place for anybody that is trying to be here in any way outside mm-hmm. of just being being born here and you know having that citizenship easily and inherently granted to them and i'm really sorry for anybody or anyone that has any friends or family that are affected by this because it is stressful enough trying to navigate a new country when you're getting an education or for any reason for that matter let alone if you have to constantly live in fear of policies like this and being essentially you know deported at a moment's notice right if you if your school won't allow you to physically attend you'll be deported and it and your visa will be revoked it's it's the it's the college equivalent of forcing uh, everybody to go back to school or lose their funding right uh in k through 12 so right. it's it, but you know now you add the whole xenophobic uh twist to it that probably stephen miller came up with and mm-hmm. and you know trump loves and now you've got this scenario where you have a choice to either be deported or risk your life. Yep, exactly. And it's always been the case. Uh, It's always been customary that people who wanted to come here for school, if they were just planning on taking online classes, that wasn't enough to grant them a student visa. So 
there is some sort of precedent for it not being allowed for international students to come over here just wanting to take online classes. However, the fact that everything is happening so quickly and they didn't get those student visas on the pretense of online classes, this is just something that's happened as a direct result, by the way, of his administration sucking at handling the problem that they now are supposed to live in fear and potentially have to leave the country because of this. It's just... It is, it is, you know, I woke up to this headline and it, it was a really, really, really kind of like dark reaction that I had to it because it's just really shitty. So I'm sorry to report that bad news, but that's, that's what hmm. he's saying right now. Well, thank you for that update. Those are, those are our headlines from under the radar. Uh, if you stick around, we will be right back. I'm going to be interviewing Amy Wolf, co-founder of SCOTUS blog. I got to speak to her today about the SCOTUS decisions and what's coming uh, Thursday morning, which I'm sure you all know by now. So stick around. Hey, everybody. It's AG. I'd like to thank our sponsor, CarShield, for supporting the podcast. These days, uh, your car has got a lot of computer systems in there. Uh, it's very formal and it's very complex from electronically, contro- electronically controlled transmissions to touchscreen displays to dozens of sensors. But you can't fix any of those new features yourself. It's not like my old Ford F-250. I would just climb in the hood like with the engine and be able to fix things. Not anymore. Uh, I hate dealing with tech-related car stuff. I freaked out once just trying to get the car to stop playing that U2 album that was forced on uh, my iPhone. But anyway, it was driving me crazy. Seriously, the computer car repairs can cost a fortune, and the repairs can take forever. That's why I have CarShield now. What I love the most about this service is they have monthly plans that can be customized to fit your specific needs. Uh, The people at CarShield understand payment flexibility is a must right now. CarShield has affordable protection plans that can save you thousands for a covered repair on computers, GPS, electronics, and more. There's no long-term contract contracts or commitments and CarShield gives you options uh, that others won't. You get to choose your favorite mechanic, for example, the one that you like to go to or your favorite dealership to do the work and CarShield takes care of the rest. They also offer complimentary 24-7 roadside assistance and a rental car while yours is in the shop. CarShield uh, has helped over a million customers, so drive with confidence knowing you can get coverage from America's number one auto protection company. For as low as 99 bucks a month, you can protect your car from surprises and save thousands for a covered repair. Call 800-CAR-6000 and mention code DAILYBEANS or visit carshield.com and use code DAILYBEANS to save 10%. That's carshield.com, use code DAILYBEANS. A deductible may apply. All right, everybody, welcome back. We had another Supreme Court Opinion Day Wednesday. And if you're like me on those mornings, you know, manically refreshing SCOTUS blog, then you will know our next guest. She's the co-founder of the SCOTUS blog. And before that, she served as counsel in over two dozen merits cases at the Supreme Court and argued two cases there. She's also taught Supreme Court litigation at Harvard, Stanford, and Vanderbilt Law. It's Amy Howe. Amy, thanks for speaking with me today. Thanks for inviting me. Great to talk to you. Yes, I am. I watch your blog like a hawk. So I'm really, really excited to speak to you today. And uh, most of our listeners also have been, you know, feverishly awaiting the opinions on the Trump tax cases. But we did have two very we've gotten so many important cases coming out uh, from this term uh, as we've been waiting for those. But we you know, the two very important opinions handed down today, I was hoping you could give us like a little brief synopsis of those cases so that we can discuss the implications. Sure. The first one, um, the first one was called Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania, and it involves the Affordable Care Act's birth control mandate. The Affordable Care Act does not actually impose this mandate, but as a result of language in the Affordable Care Act, 
uh, under the Obama administration, an agency in the Department of Health and Human Services issued regulations and guidelines that require most employers to provide their female employees with health insurance that includes access to certain forms of birth control. So during the Obama administration, we had litigation about this because employers, including uh, Hobby Lobby and then religious charity groups like the Little Sisters of the Poor, argued that having to provide this health insurance and, by extension, birth control to their female employees violated their religious freedoms. Um, and then in 2017, the Trump administration, when it came into office, issued new guidelines that regulations that created exemptions or expanded existing exemptions so that employers with religious or moral objections to the birth control mandate could opt out. So Pennsylvania and New Jersey sued the Trump administration arguing that, th that these exemptions violated the Affordable Care Act itself and that they hadn't sort of jumped through all of the hoops that federal agencies have to follow when they're enacting new rules. And so that, that this dispute between the Trump administration and the Little Sisters of the Poor jumped in to defend the regulations, the, the exemptions, on the one hand, and Pennsylvania and New Jersey was what the Supreme Court decided today. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, by a vote of seven to two, the Supreme Court ruled for the Trump administration and the Little Sisters of the Poor. They rejected the challenges. They said that the the new exemptions for religious and moral objections didn't, don't violate the Affordable Care Act. The Trump administration dotted all of its I's and crossed all of its T's when it when it enacted these exemptions. So was this case, was the, like the merits of this case weren't whether or not this was constitutional, but whether or not they violated the Affordable Care Act? Exactly, exactly. This is not about whether it's constitutional. The Trump administration had argued that it was actually compelled to do, to create these exemptions by something called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is a federal law that uh, protects sort of individual religious freedom. And the Supreme Court, uh, in an opinion by Justice Lito, said, you know, we're not going to get into that. You know, all we're going to get into is whether or not this is sort of substantively in terms of the Affordable Care Act or the uh, sort of procedural part of it uh, passes muster, and it does. Okay, so we could see future cases where this type of exemption violates the Constitution, for example. Yes, well, I mean, and it's complicated. You know, Justice Elena Kagan joined the court's result. She agreed with the majority, the majority that, you know, it doesn't violate the Affordable Care Act. They, they jumped through all of the right procedural hoops. But she said one thing that the lower courts didn't decide, the Supreme Court's not deciding today, is whether or not this is what's called arbitrary and capricious, whether it's not, whether or not it's the product of reasoned decision-making. Oh, that's sort of like what the DACA case was based on, right? The, exactly. Yeah. So she said when these cases go back to the lower courts, you know, they have to, they could still look at this question. And she said, honestly, I don't think it does. You know, I think it's too broad. Why do publicly traded companies get to say that they have religious objections to the mandate? Why do people, why do companies get to say, why do employers get to say that, they have, uh, you know, conscientious objections to the birth control mandate. So you know, the, the litigation is not over. Um, and, you know, I think we still could be litigating, the, could still see litigation 
about this for a long time because depending on how the 2020 election turns out, a new Biden administration could decide to roll back some of these exemptions. And then we would see, go back to this litigation again about whether or not the, you know, these exemptions are required by either the Constitution or the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So it was, on the one hand, a big victory for the Trump administration and the Little Sisters of the Poor, but I don't think it's the end of this debate over the birth control mandate. It rarely is. Um, and, you know, while I, you know, while I still personally disagree with religious exemptions, it's the moral objections that freaks me out uh, a little bit more, you know, like that someone, like you said, a publicly traded company can just decide, I don't like women who use birth control, so I'm not going to, then where does that stop, you know? So ho- hopefully we'll see more um, more from this case. And what, and what was the other case today? So the second case today was something called the ministerial uh, exception um, about whether or not Catholic teachers at an at two elementary schools. There were two cases very similar that came to the court at the same time, and the Supreme Court heard oral argument together. Um, two teachers at Catholic elementary schools in Southern California. One alleges that she was fired because of age discrimination. The other one, who actually has since passed away, but the lawsuit was continued by her husband, argued that she was the discrimin- uh, victim of discrimination because she was fired after she announced that she had breast cancer. So they brought these discrimination suits against the Catholic elementary schools where they worked, and the elementary schools argued that the cases should be should be dismissed under something called this ministerial exception, which is a carve-out that says that uh, churches and religious institutions should be able to choose their ministers. They should be able to say, uh, you know, who speaks for them, and that they should not be the subject of discrimination suits. Mm. Um, and so, again, by a vote of seven to two, the Supreme Court ruled that these teachers are ministers. They didn't have the title of ministers. Just and it was Justice. Uh, the, the previous opinion, actually, I, I made a mistake. The uh, decision in the Little Sisters of the Poor case was written by Justice Clarence Thomas. The decision in the elementary school teacher's case today was written by Justice Samuel Alito. And he said, you know, they're not, we don't call them, the school doesn't call them ministers. They may not have formal religious training, but what we're going to look at is what they do. And religious education is really important in the Catholic faith and lots of other faiths in the United States. And the teachers performed what the school regards as vital religious duties. They you know, taught their students religion. Taught their students religion. They prayed with religion, um, and we're not going to have judges sort of going behind the curtain to try and figure out whether or not uh, people who work for churches and other religious institutions uh, act as ministers. We're going to sort of defer to what the employers say they are. So Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote this. Uh, sharp dissent. She said, you know, these teachers taught secular subjects. They didn't have religious titles. They weren't even required to be Catholic. And not only is is this problematic, Sotomayor said, for teachers, but also for coaches and camp counselors and nurses and social workers uh, and lots of other people who work for religious institutions. Yeah, I got to say, having gone to Catholic school for 12 years, I'm with Justice Sotomayor on this one, just as a personal aside. Um, We had some nuns that taught us theology and and world cultures. And then we had 
uh, secular teachers who were not nuns uh, that taught us other subjects, math, geometry, English, etc. And there was there was no praying in class and it, they weren't ministers. Uh, and so I just find this I just disagree. I don't like this one. <laughs> I, and I don't understand why it went seven to two either. I'm not sure. I mean, I would expect this ticket to go a little bit different. But I noticed Ginsburg dissented pretty heavily on both of these cases today. Yeah, no, and it was very interesting because there's, you know, we think of the Supreme Court as being sort of four very conservative justices. The, the, the Chief Justice, John Roberts, is sort of the justice in the middle, and then the four more liberal justices. But today's decision showed that there is, you know, there's a little bit of a divide between the four more liberal justices. In both of the cases today, uh, Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg were dissenters, while the Justice Stephen Breyer and Justice Elena Kagan went with at least the result that the majority reached, if not necessarily their reasoning in the birth control mandate case. Mm. Yeah, and shortly we got after we got the R numbers for these cases, uh, which we, we just had like a, a, a Steve Vladek came on and gave us a SCOTUS blog reading 101 class, and so we know what that means. Um, the, after the last case of the day was announced, um, they shortly after that, they announced their next opinion day, which is Thursday, tomorrow morning. And I believe they said that's the final day of the session. Yes, you know, it's, it's all we're sort of operating in this weird, uncharted pandemic world. Because if, we, if the justices had been in the courtroom today reading their opinions, summaries from the bench, then at the end of the session, the Chief Justice would have said something along the lines of, you know, we'll be back tomorrow for the final day, uh, b- you know, before the summer recess. But nobody is in the courtroom, and mm-hmm. so it all happens electronically. But the Supreme Court did announce electronically that tomorrow will be the last day of the term, and so there are three decisions left, one involving whether or not the, you know, a big part of eastern Oklahoma is actually an Indian reservation and has been all these years, even though no one thought about it, and then two involving efforts to get the president's uh, financial records, which many, many people have been waiting a long time for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the one we know all about. Um, but I'm glad you brought up McGirt versus Oklahoma. That's going to be a, a really consequential decision as well. Uh, but, you know, everyone had been freaked out. I wish you could have heard some of the conversations that we were having or, or you know, people were like, oh, they're withholding this on purpose. They're going to punt it until next term. They're, you know, this is, a, you know, political, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, no, it'll it'll be out. We just had, you know, COVID pushed back the arguments, so COVID pushed back the decisions. And so we're just got to wait a second. Uh, but we are going to... You were absolutely right. I mean, they, they had tried to have this argument in, in March when they granted review back in whatever month it was. They made a point of saying, we're going to have the oral argument during the court's March argument session to try to give themselves as much time as they could to decide the case because I'm sure they knew it was going to be a hard one. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to, to be fair to the Supreme Court, and that is not a, a phrase you'll hear me uh, <laughs> utter that often, it hasn't even been two months yeah. since the argument in the Trump tax returns. And these are huge historic cases, and they know that. And, they're, you know, they're, I'm sure, trying to get them right, and I'm sure there are multiple opinions. Uh, and they're, you know, they want to go on summer, even even if their summer vacations are not as as glamorous as they normally are. They still want to, I'm sure, get out, get yeah. out of town, or get at least get out of get out of the office. 
they're tired. They're all 80 years old. So they, you know, they need a break. And so I totally understand that. But yeah, they did go arguing into May on those on these cases. And um, so I'm, you know, obviously, we're all very excited to find out what those I'm excited. that This is the last day I have to set a SCOTUS alarm because I'm on the West Coast. And um, it's very early for me to to get up. But uh, I'm, yeah, I'm in Wyoming right now, so I feel oh. I'm not. It's not quite as early, but I feel your pain. <laughs> and uh, and and I love how we all t- like communicate in Eastern Standard Time because that's where the capital is. But um, it's uh, tomorrow. That w- I think you know, some people are like, I think we got these seven two seven two decisions because we're going to see a couple of five fours tomorrow. But uh, I think that it could be, I know, at least when I was listening to the oral arguments on, on these cases, uh, which were some of the first that were done remotely, so they were a bit awkward uh, to listen to, but um, I, I know, I, I felt like John Robert or Judge Roberts was looking for a middle ground somehow, uh, and so I personally think we could, I, I think they'll decide in favor of the Manhattan District Attorney uh, for the Mazar subpoena, but I'm I'm a toss up on the on the House um, subpoenas, uh, and there's there's two of them: one for Mazar's in oversight, I believe, and the other one in the Intel and Foreign Affairs or uh, no Finance Committee, Financial Service, Financial Services for the Deutsche Bank and Capital One, and I feel like we could get the oversight one subpoena upheld and not the Deutsche Bank. You know, I don't know. I feel like the way that Roberts is going to find this middle ground is by either splitting or waiting to see what the other justices do, which is kind of how the Title VII decision felt like, oh, well, then I'm just going to concur with the judgment or, you know, make an actual opinion. I, you know, I, I don't know. We'll right, see. right. No, I mean, I think I think there were two sets of conventional wisdom. And one is that the cases could split, that they rule for Vance, the Manhattan district attorney, but not... Uh, but they rule for Trump on Congress, or that they rule for Vance, but then they, it gets more granular and they split on the different congressional subpoenas. The one thing I will say um, is that you know it's always hard to make predictions based on the oral argument, but I really feel like it was hard to make predictions on the May oral arguments where we're doing this over the phone so we like not only can we not see their faces Mm -hmm. but the format was just very artificial um you know it's just much harder when everybody gets their little three minute time slot or whatever it is to know what's really bothering them who's really worked up about something and is just asking that question because it's their turn to ask a question Mm-hmm. And I felt like letter was a little. But we'll know tomorrow is the good news. <laughs> we will. We could speculate for for uh, however many hours it takes to get this decision. But yeah, I did feel like letter just didn't. I feel like letter does better in person. Uh, and it, and it was, I don't know. It just it was so hard to gauge. Uh, n- not that I'm any good at gauging any of this anyway. But you're right. We will know tomorrow. So if I'm hmm, I'm nervous. This is this is a huge separation of powers issue. So we'll see how it uh, we'll see how the cookie crumbles. And also, I'm I am actually really interested in what happens in the McGirt v. Oklahoma case too. So, uh, are, are you available tomorrow for us to talk after these decisions are handed down? I am. It would be a lot of fun. Uh, I would love to have you back uh, to discuss some of the ins and outs and the final 
you know, who writes the opinion. We can, I, I think it'll be great. So thank you so much. All right, so have your people call my people and we'll figure, <laughs> we'll figure out. <laughs> By my which I mean, send me an email. Yeah. My people is me and your people is you. Exactly. It's um, me. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Co-founder of SCOTUS blog, Amy Howe. I appreciate you speaking with me. I'm sure you're busy. Can you tell our listeners where to find you? Uh, sure. You can find me on Twitter at ahowblogger and uh, either at scotusblog.com, for which I am an independent contractor, or at my own blog, amylhow.com. Awesome. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today. All right. Thanks for having me. It was so much fun to talk to you. All right, everybody, stick around. We'll be right back after this quick break with the Good News Block with Jordan, so stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG. Uh, if you've been listening for a while now, you have, you're probably tired of me talking about my Helix mattress and how crazy it is. You're probably so tired that you wish you had a Helix mattress to sleep on. It is the best mattress ever. I know Jordan loves hers, Joelle and Amanda. It's We all say it's the best thing we've ever slept on. Well, now Helix has launched a new company called Allform. They've gone beyond the bedroom, beyond mattresses, to make furniture for the rest of your house. They make comfortable sofas and chairs delivered directly to you with fast, free shipping, and they make it easy to customize your sofa or, you know, your chairs or love seats using premium materials that are spill, scratch, and, and stain resistant, and they're at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. Normally, if you want to order a customized sofa, it can take weeks or months. And you would need someone to come and assemble it in your home. And you have to get a freight company and... You know, that takes a six-hour delivery window or whatever. But Allform just takes three to seven days in the mail, and you can assemble it yourself in a few minutes with no tools. And with Allform, you can pick your fabric and the color and the color of the legs and the sofa size and the shape to make sure it's the perfect for you in your home. Uh, I got a three-seater sofa customized with whiskey leather, whiskey-colored leather, which I never would have been able to have a leather couch with pod pets, but because it's spill screen and scratch-resistant and comes with a forever warranty, I can do it now, and I'm very excited. I got a walnut leg finish and a chaise lounge and it came in a couple of days i put it together myself no problems easy peasy lemon squeezy it's super roomy modern looking uh it, it really ties the room together as the dude would say uh, they have armchairs and love seats all the way up to eight seat sectional so there's something for everyone and best of all you get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it and if you don't love it but you will they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund no hidden costs or restocking fees and they also like i said have a forever warranty literally forever so to find your perfect sofa check out allform.com slash daily beans and allform is offering 20 percent off all orders for our listeners that's allform.com slash daily beans all right everybody it's time for the good news well we'll And joining me today for the good news is Jordan Coburn. Hey, Jordan. Hello. It's been minutes since I've spoken to you. How are you? <laughs> Entire minutes. Uh, um, I'm great. You know, just sitting here on my tuchus, same way as ever. <laughs> same as ever. Yeah, exactly. I, I know that we were starting to get ready to maybe have, again, like a social distance, six feet masks on po podcast face to face. And then this spike. And now we're like, oh let's wait you know so uh it's it's weird to go on break go go to a break go to a commercial break and come back and you're still not here so i have to pretend like you've been here the whole time um <laughs> <laughs> it's just i miss you i miss you too <laughs> we have so much good news uh and you guys you have to listen to quarantine confessions this week because uh if you listened to last saturday uh Justice Daddy, anonymous millionaire, wrote back to us. <laughs> so we have, we have an update 
we're already we're on week five we're on episode five and we already have uh like you know how unsolved mysteries uh-huh. right after this break we'll have an update on this case yeah so we, we have an update on that so i'm excited justice daddies sponsor <laughs> our lives seriously <laughs> I know, I um, know. Yes, yes, I will kick it off because uh, this is a Las Vegas-centric confession, or good news, I should say. And I'm from Las Vegas, so here we go. Let's hear it from Celeste, pronoun she, her. She says, I'm a single mom who has spent seven years completing my bachelor's degree while working full-time and raising my daughter. Badass. That's from us. Uh, I graduated in December of 2019. I got a great position in late February, then COVID hit, and I was laid off less than three weeks after starting. I had a well-deserved pity party for a bit, but then I found an opportunity to get my teaching license in the state of Nevada and work with a program that strives to end educational inequities. I have now accepted a teaching position at a school in North Las Vegas and will be moving from Texas this month to start teaching in these crazy times. While the school year will start off looking very different, I have been teaching summer school courses virtually over the summer and have found this is something I have a natural knack for. Also, Jordan, please give me any tips for navigating life in Vegas because I've never lived outside of Texas. That's so cool, Celeste. North Las Vegas is a place that really historically struggles with just being under-resourced, especially in education. And that's that's really rad that you're going to that area. Um, I guess for tips, hit me up on Twitter if you want to DM me, at Jordan's Confused, uh, J-O-R-D-A-N-S Confused. I'd be happy to chat with you about that stuff because, yeah, there's definitely, if you're, like, looking for a certain place to live or whatever, I'd be, I'd be happy to help you out with that stuff. But that's... Um, that's so that that's awesome and there are some texas style casinos uh there <laughs> so if you like feel like you're not like you miss like you're homesick isn't there one with like a giant cowgirl neon cowgirl yeah there's like a by fremont street kind of in old las vegas yeah. sort of like behind the stratosphere mm-hmm. like that kind of area yeah there's yeah vegas right now honestly to me sometimes it becomes more and more unrecognizable because they're constantly just tearing stuff down and like building up new things but in terms of like living there and stuff, I'd be happy to to give you some give you some tips. Definitely be on the lookout because uh, that mayor, as we've spoken about, doesn't really give a shit. She said that she's willing to offer up her people as guinea pigs in terms of reopening preemptively. So I would be extra careful in terms of of that COVID uh, related struggle when you move there, but. Yeah, um, the mayor is is awful. Yes. Yep. And and I was only kidding about that casino being like Texas on the inside. <laughs> it's nothing like Texas. It yeah. just has a cowgirl on the front of it. I just wanted to be clear. <laughs> but that's awesome. I'm that's a, you know, high five, triple high five, hat trick for the awesomeness that you do. Mm-hmm. Um Next good news story is from Anonymous, pronoun she, her. Hey there, I've been listening for years. I love that your podcast help keeps me in, helps keep me informed, even when sometimes I wish I wasn't. My good news is that after months of applications, I have an offer for a PhD position. It's a relatively small thing in the grand scheme, but it's a huge relief to me to finally have stable employment on the horizon. In my field, grad school typically comes with a tuition waiver and paid assistantship, so it counts as employment. To any listeners in wildlife ecology conservation, do not pay for grad school ever. Anyway, thanks for all you do. <laughs> I love the shows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you can get that, you know, assistantship, paid assistantship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yes. 
love that. Congratulations. That's cool. So wildlife ecology conservation. That sounds like what's like one of the things I wanted to be when I was a kid. I wanted to be like a marine biologist or, you know, work for the World Wildlife Federation, trying to help, you know, prevent or repopulate dangerously close to extinct species. And um, it all started, I think, because when I was I, my parents took me to, to the San Diego. We lived in Cleveland. Parents took me to the San Diego Zoo when I was like five. Mm-hmm. And I kept asking where the dinosaurs were. And at the end of the zoo, I we were going to the car and I started to throw a temper tantrum because they didn't take me to see the dinosaurs, which <laughs> is when my father had to explain to me that the dinosaurs were extinct and what extinct meant. And I was so oh, sad and mad. Oh, and, God. And, uh, you know, I was so like, no. Yes. I, I had my heart set on seeing um a stegosaurus i had was gonna sing a song for him god yeah it's hard enough just learning about the concept of death let alone an entire species dying it is like the most tragic shit and 65 million years ago to boot right and what a giant meteor is like it there's how many lessons for a five-year-old are there in the extinction of dinosaurs yes um (laughs) <laughs> and and how that must have shaped me as a as an adult, mm-hmm. and it might be why I listen to The Cure so much. Ah, well, I do as well, and I didn't have that in my background. There must be something else, <laughs> something else very sad and pasty, <laughs> something else sinister and on a grand universal biological sac- like scale. <laughs> yeah, totally. Some Tim Burton shit, or I guess Tim Burton wasn't a part of your childhood. Whatever. No, but if if he existed, then he would. Tim Burton is the Robert Smith of clay, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh. Um, Yeah, yeah. Tim Tim Burton and Danny Elfman were like my favorite. uh, Yeah. Pair to do films and and film scores, and I remember when at Comic Con, the San Diego Symphony Orchestra and Tim Burton and Danny Elfman did a whole like. Oh two God! Creaming my pants. That sounds so dope. Of Danny Elfman music from from Tim Burton films, and then it was there was a huge, massive screen where you had doodles, animated doodles from Tim Burton that were playing while the symphony was playing all the songs from all the favorite best movies of the universe. And so, oh my <sighs> God, it was so good. God, that's so cool. I was such a little goth kid when I was in fifth grade. Mm-hmm. I used to wear like the ball chain necklace and like I had like black painted nails and i was always watching nightmare before christmas and shit <laughs> like, always had that stuff i remember i had a friend i my parents weren't divorced yet and i had a friend whose parents were divorced and she'd be like you're not even that sad <laughs> like you don't even have <laughs> you don't even have that shitty of a life i'm like dude my parents are so fighting i am so sad <laughs> i know my my parents were like what are you why do you have safety pins in your ears and i'm like it's a phase it's a phase okay (laughs) and i am miserable you don't even know you know yeah yeah exactly (sighs) oh so funny there's just like a hierarchy of goth Mm. if you still (laughs) if you still have your parents living under the same household then you're you're a fraud (laughs) um look mom i'm in my own little world and nobody understands but me okay (laughs) i remember my mom 
my mom did some traumatizing shit when my friends were over one time i don't know if you're a fan of nightmare before christmas you'll know exactly what song i'm talking about but it's when jack first finds like christmas land or, or whatever the fuck and he's like uh <laughs> clearly i'm a huge fan um but but it's the it's the song it's what's this and he's like going around yeah. and discovering this? all this yeah what's, what's this? this what's yeah. this yeah da, 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 da. right okay so my mom my mom loved to do this thing where she would like change lyrics and songs right because classic that's always fun mm-hmm. she did it she found a pair of my underwear that had like fallen out of my pants or something and they were just like in the middle of the living room and i had friends over and my mom grabs it and breaks out into song dancing around with my underwear and she's like what's this what's this it's Jordan's underwear. What's this? <laughs> she starts like singing, <laughs> and, like dancing around. I was like, "That is something no. I would do." <laughs> How dare you use my that favorite childhood sad movie against me? Further alienating, uh, alienating me into my it's Jordan's hole. underwear. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking fantastic. Ah. Uh. Whenever you can embarrass your child and pull in a Danny Elfman classic from a Tim Burton movie. Yes. Mm, chef's yeah. kiss. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Um, okay. Next up from Sherry. Pronounce she here. Sherry says, my daughter is going to be featured in a film honoring the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. The superhero project partners with uh, cha- partners with challenged kids to create their own superhero characters. They made a superhero Aww. for my daughter earlier this year. It's a flying rainbow that defeats diseases with magic crystals. Tonight, they asked to include her in their film. You can find info about the superhero project at sidekicksohio.org. That's S-I-D-E-K-I-C-K-S-O-H-I-O dot org. I love that. Oh my that. god, that's awesome. I love that so that much. That sounds like that sounds like Mandy's alter ego. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. A flying rainbow it's that defeats beautiful. diseases with magic crystals. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's wonderful. Congratulations. They did so many like amazing things. At least I'm sure mm. that there's a critical lens uh, that that will identify like it not going far enough, and I'm not super aware of that lens as a privileged person. Uh, but but yeah, that's a beautiful thing to celebrate. Mm-hmm. And we can always work to make it better. Totally. Uh, all right, next from Julie McDonald. Um, pronouns she her. Hello, Wonder Women. I'm happy to share some good news. Back in March, you know, a hundred years ago. Yes, I know Julie McDonald. It was the month that lasted a year. Uh, She says, I saw a post for a grassroots organization started by a young woman called Pandemic of Love. Its sole purpose is to connect patrons who are in a position to help others right in their local community. Uh, I contacted the San Jose, California chapter, and they matched me with a young single mother of three who had just lost her job and did not qualify for unemployment. I've been able to send her regular PayPal donations to help keep her afloat. I'm super fortunate to have a full-time job and income, and I love the idea of knowing my donations were going straight directly to a person in need. We have become friends over email, and she updates me regularly on how she's doing. Pandemic of Love now has over 600 volunteers who run local chapters all over the world and countless patrons who are helping those in need during this time. To contact um, this organization, go to pandemicoflove.com. That is brilliant. Yeah, that really is. So cool. Thank you, Julie. Um, Our final piece of good news comes from Janice, pronounced she, her. Janice says, I recently purchased a yard sign that says, not voting is the number one cause of unwanted presidencies. Please exercise (laughs) your right to choose. (laughs) 
Oh my god, Janice attached a picture and it's just three baby Trumps just yelling all next to each other. Oh my god, that's so good. Okay, um, uh, and has a picture of a baby Trump in a diaper. I posted a pic to my Facebook page and it sparked interest and inquiries on where to buy one. I hope to fill my San Diego neighborhood with them. Love you gals, keep being you. Love, Boomer and the San Diego Burbs. That is so good. I will put one in my San Diego yard. Yes. You have to go grab our address off of the website, um, dailybeanspod.com, yes. and, and, and send us one. I would love that, too. That's so freaking awesome. Oh, my God. I'm seeing the picture of this. That's a bunch. We'll put them up. We'll buy them. Whatever. Seriously. It's, it's amazing. It's, the, you know, the baby, you know, the baby Trump balloon. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. It's like three of those. So good. <laughs> and he's oh just that. making that face. God, 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 God. I read something today that I had somehow managed to never read throughout the last four years. And it was the phrase, the Republican president, because it was a BBC story that was referencing Trump. So from the outside, they they refer to him as the Republican president. And for some reason, it just hit me as shitty in so many ways because it was like, you know, it's bad enough to recognize and, you know, read a reminder that you have a Republican president, president, period. But then to think, not only is he a Republican president, he is like the worst president we've ever seen. And for, I don't know, for some reason reading that, it just, it just hit me very, very, it hit me in the face pretty hard, I guess. We're, I'm so used to seeing him referred to as Trump, 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 as if he's just this sort of separate entity that's like an alien entity separate from the rest of the GOP machine, but he's not. At the end of the day, he's still just a Republican doing all of that party's bidding. And this was not a good news yeah, well, thing for me to add at all. When you refer to him <laughs> when you refer to him as the president or President Trump or Republican President Trump, that puts his ass squarely in that sacred seat behind the resolute desk where it does not belong. And it's just yeah. a hard image. You know, it's a hard feeling exactly. to, to cope with. Exactly. But yeah, this is the good news segment. Yes, it is. And I do want to thank everyone um, for sending in their good news segment. And uh, re- you know, good news or not good news, the tax the tax decisions come tomorrow as I speak. But you might have already gotten them by the time you hear me read these words, because you know, obviously, we release the next day to the public. But we release the same night to patrons, so become a patron. And we have, a, I think, we still have a lot of sponsorships open. If you can't afford it because of COVID. Go to dailybeansbot.com and scroll down and you'll see a, you know, I want to sponsor somebody and I want to be sponsored button and click that one and you can apply and we'll send you all the stuff that you need to get your episodes early and ad free and get the newsletter and get early onto our uh, Friday happy hour meet and greet and all that good stuff and yay. And you can send all of your good news there on that website too and all of your quarantine confessions as well and um, any theme ideas that you have for our happy hour this weekend. I'm going to try to see who I could invite to come and make a, a surprise appearance. Um, in fact, I think I just right this second got confirmation from Andrew Torres that he'll be he'll be popping on with us nice. from the uh, Opening Arguments podcast. Nice, nice, nice. Love Andrew. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, that's it. Any final thoughts? Not for me. Uh, okay. Well, <laughs> then uh, until uh, we speak again, everyone, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of your mental health and take care of the planet. I've been AG. I've been Jordan Coburn. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by AG and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by AG, Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. 
Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>